right before Thanksgiving, I went into a business where I, I do a lot of business, and, and uh, the manager and I have kind of gotten to be friends. And so I asked him if he had plans for the holidays. He said, yeah. He said, everybody's coming over to my house. All my brothers and family are coming over to my house for, for Thanksgiving. And I said, well, that's great. And then he said, no, it's not great. He said, every time my family comes over, it always turns into a fight. And he said, the reason why I have it in my house, I can send people home when they misbehave. Uh, <laughs> And when he said that, I I thought, how many times have I heard something similar to that? You know, uh, when I watch television and I see the commercials for the Christmas season, like you see, there's always this elegantly dressed family in this beautifully appointed home sitting around this table, and the light is always soft and warm, and the music is sweet and holiday. And it's like, wow, the best part of holidays is family. And it may be that way for you, but I just hear a lot of people tell me that that their family experience of the holidays isn't like that. In fact, I have friends who dread the holidays because they have to get together with members of their family. And it's it's not pleasant. So what is it that makes that happen? Now, it could be that you're here today and you're saying, Mark, uh, we don't have any dysfunction in our family. We have, we, everybody gets along great. There, there are no problems. Nobody ever disappointed anybody. It's been this way for generations. We just never have any issues, and we probably should be listening to you today. But for, for most of us, our, our, our circumstances are not exactly perfect as it relates to family and holidays. And why is that? Why is it so challenging to pull together families and holidays? And I think maybe it's because our expectations are high, and we're reminded at holiday times that Things perhaps have not met our expectations or we've dealt with some disappointments. It could be that you're looking around the table and there is somebody at the table who has hurt you deeply and that maybe hasn't been healed or maybe it hasn't been resolved or maybe the person who hurt you deeply has never admitted to hurting you deeply. And so when you're, when you're coming to the table for Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner, it's very hard for you to focus on the joy of the occasion because you're saying to yourself, I'm not completely well, and the reason why I'm not completely well is sitting here at the table, and I have to pretend like we're all one big happy family. Well, there's a word probably that comes to your mind when you think about a family experience like this, and it's a word that became popularized in the 90s. I remember when I first started pastoring in the late 70s, whenever a family had issues, you might talk about a troubled family or a broken family. But in the early 90s, I remember when I started hearing a brand new term as it relates to the family, and that was the term dysfunctional. People began to talk about a dysfunctional family. And I'd never heard that term dysfunctional related to human experience before, because prior to that, every time I heard the word dysfunctional, it was in the context of systems or machinery a dysfunctional system or a dysfunctional piece of equipment. But now all of a sudden, I'm starting to hear it in relationship to marriage or parent-child relationships or family, dysfunctional family. And I think that's a good word. I'm glad we've got it because I think it's the best word possible to think about when a family is having issues because dysfunctional, think for a moment. The very root concept of dysfunctional is that it doesn't function the way it's designed to. It doesn't operate the way it's designed to. It operates it functions, but it doesn't function according to design. Uh, pardon the personal reference. Many years ago, I was playing touch football here at the, at the church. We were in an old location, and we were at a park, and some of those guys from the church were playing touch football. And I went up to catch a pass, and, and I had the, pass, the ball was behind me, and I turned to catch it, and when I came down, I came down awkwardly on my left leg. And they say you could hear it pop 20 yards away. So I lay there on the ground. I knew something was really wrong with my left knee, but I said the two things that I always say when I get hurt playing sports. I said, number one, I'm fine. Number two, don't tell Mary Alice. 
And, um, and so anyway, I tried to play for a little while, but I knew something was really wrong with my left knee. Now, later that night, I don't know if you've ever had a really serious knee injury, but if you have, you know the pain's just really extraordinary. I woke up in the middle of the night, and I thought, oh, my goodness, something is really, really wrong. So Marielle's took me to the emergency room, and, and this was before MRIs were kind of a standard procedure for anyone who had an injury. So they did sort of the orthopedic thing, and they were checking, they were checking my leg to see if there was any play in my knee, if there was any ligament damage. And my, my leg turned out to be very, very stable, and they couldn't, they couldn't determine any ligament damage. And they said, oh, you're going to be all right. You may have, like, chipped a cart, a piece of meniscus or something, but, you know, go home, see if you feel better in a few days. And the fact of the matter is, and this morning you want to know, in three or four days I was feeling great. My, my knee didn't hurt at all. The only problem was it wouldn't completely unlock. I was walking around like this. And, and you know, see, it was functional, but it wasn't functioning the way it was designed. And after about three weeks of that, some wise person talked me into going to see a surgeon. The surgeon said, oh, you probably have a little piece of meniscus in there. We're going to go in there, and we're going to pop that out. And so they went in there, and when I woke up from surgery, I found out, no, it wasn't meniscus. I had shredded my ACL, and it was all balled up inside the joint. Now, here's the thing. A lot of us have families, and we're functioning, but we're kind of like me. You know, we're, we're not functioning the way we're supposed to function. It's because something is all balled up. Well, today I want to talk to you about a dysfunctional family and kind of an odd situation, and that is this. Jesus came from a dysfunctional family. Did you know that? I mean, up on our, up on our stage you're seeing all these names that you can find in Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 3. These are, the, these are the genealogies, the family trees of Jesus. Luke takes us all the way back to, uh, to Adam. Matthew takes us all the way back to Abraham. And we get a look at Jesus' family tree. Well, here's the thing. Jesus came from generations of dysfunctional family. In fact, you can cut into Jesus' family tree just about anywhere, and you'll discover that they're really extraordinarily dysfunctional people. I want to focus on the guy up in the upper right-hand corner whose name is Jacob, because Jacob is, is a very key person in the family tree of Jesus. Jacob would have 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the federal heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So think about this. This is sort of like the early family of the nation of Israel, in the lineage of Jesus, we sort of get the idea that this family, as special as it is, 12 tribes, for crying out loud, we get the idea these people all had halos, and they were just, you know, they were the kind of people that you make stained glass out of. I want to tell you something. These are the kind of people that could have had a reality show. And I don't mean, I'm telling you something. We're, I mean, here's the deal. I'm not talking about one, one season of reality show. These people could have had 10 years, 10 seasons of reality show, and I promise you, they would have kept you tuning in every week. Now, here's the thing. I'm not even going to be able to touch the surface of the dysfunction of this family. I want you to get into this, and so here's what I want to challenge you to do. The Bible contains 4,000 years of human history. Half of that is in one book, the book of Genesis. 2,000 years of the 4,000 years of recorded human history in the Bibles in the book of Genesis in 50 chapters. So it's a, it's a very important book. Now, this family and their dysfunction comprise half of that book. The book that has half of the recorded human history of the Bible, half the book is just this dysfunctional family. So if for your own benefit and for your own help, I would encourage you sometime, I mean, you could do it this afternoon if you wanted to, but I would encourage you sometime to read second half of the book of Genesis, start in about chapter 25 and read about Jacob and his family, and you will discover that I'm not even going to tell you the most salacious parts. I mean, this is a crazy family. 
And interestingly, he's, this family is presented right at the beginning of Jesus' story. If you were to open up Matthew's gospel, the New Testament, the second verse of the New Testament says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Like my friend who said, whenever my brothers come over, it breaks out into a fight. Well, that would have happened in Jacob's family too, okay? So here's what I want to do today. As we talk about this family of Jacob in the family tree of Jesus, dysfunctional family, I'd like for us to kind of roll up our sleeves and go to work here. And I want us, I want us to ask two questions because a lot, of, a lot of you guys at New Spring are really, really young. And you haven't started your family yet. Maybe you're still dating. Or it could be that, that you're married and you haven't had your first child yet. Or it could be that your children are very, very young. What I, the reason why I want to spend this time today, I want to, take, I want to take a little time to go to school on Jacob. And I want to see how does a person have a dysfunctional family. Because Jacob is a, is a fine man, and you're going to see him when you get to heaven. And he's in the family tree of Jesus. In fact, he's a hero in the Bible. But he had a very dysfunctional family. So here's the thing. If we can learn from him, you know, we're, like, we're like the overprotective mother who went, took her kid to school on, on the first day of kindergarten and said to the teacher, now listen, my kid, my kid has behavior issues. He really acts up. But she said, now, don't say anything to him because it will offend him. She just slap the kid next to him. He'll scare him so bad he'll straighten up. So uh, <laughs> um, what, what I want us to do today is I want us to take a look at Jacob because here's the deal. We can learn something from this guy, why his family was so dysfunctional. Maybe it will help us. So I want to ask the question, how does a family get dysfunctional? And then I want to close out by is it possible for, because a lot of us are dealing with situations that we can't control and, you know, we, we've come from generations of dysfunction. Is it possible for us to be whole and healthy in a family that's dysfunctional? Those two questions, and then we'll go home. Let's start with the first one. How does a family get to be this dysfunctional? Well, here's the first thing. And, and guys, I'm going to have to talk a lot. I'm going to have to tell a lot of story. So please try to hang with me. And if you don't catch it, just read, read the Scriptures later on, and it'll, it'll, it'll be clear to you. It starts with just not dealing with your baggage. If, if you want to have a dysfunctional, and none of us do, but if you want to have a dysfunctional family, just don't deal with the baggage from the dysfunction that you grew up with. Because if you don't deal with that baggage, you will carry it with you. Now, let me just tell you that Jacob comes from a dysfunctional family. His own family, when he gets married, he's going to wind up with four wives and at least 13 kids. So, so Jacob is going to have a big family. He comes from a small family of only four people. You would think a family with four people wouldn't have enough people to be dysfunctional, but Jacob comes from a very dysfunctional family. His daddy, Isaac, does not get married until he's probably about 40 years of age, so that means he's been single for a long time. And he marries his dream girl, Rebecca. And for a long time, they're not able to have any kids, but finally she gets pregnant, and they have one pregnancy, two kids. They wind up with twins. Now, the twins' names are Esau and Jacob. Poor Jacob, he winds up being disadvantaged by minutes. See, if you're the second born of a twin, it doesn't mean a whole lot in the Western world, but back in that culture, the eldest got everything, and the second born got nothing. So think about Jacob. It wasn't like he missed it by three years. It wasn't like he had a three-year you know, three gap between him and his older brother. It was minutes. And so there were twins in this family, but the dysfunction shows up pretty quickly because the twins were very, very different. Esau, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us that Esau was very much 
a macho man. He was very masculine. The Bible says he was very hairy. He was covered with hair. And he was daddy's favorite. Daddy loved Esau because Esau, Esau was the athlete. Esau was starting middle linebacker. He had the top batting average on the baseball team. He played every sport. I mean, Esau drove a jacked-up four-wheel truck, wore camouflage, had, had a tattoo. I mean, he was daddy's boy. He was really rough. Jacob, on the other hand, the Bible says was smooth. He didn't have very much hair. He liked to watch the cooking channel and be inside the house. Jacob wore Armani and smelled like polo. <laughs> Esau drove a jacked-up four-wheel drive. Jacob drove a Prius. <laughs> and he, <laughs> he was mama's favorite. And so there's this system going on. Esau, you know, daddy's living vicariously through his athlete, his jock son, Esau, who's hairy and tough, an outdoor guy. And mama's, her boy is Jacob. He likes to be in the house with her and He's kind of tender-footed, you know, and everybody had, there's a system, and here's the thing about it, and I don't know if you've ever been anywhere close to a dysfunctional family, but if you have been, you will know this. There is a system, and everybody knows how to gain the system. Everybody knows how to work it. Daddy knows how to work it. You know, he just, he just is, you know, demonstrates pride every time Esau excels, and that way he gets Esau to to do even more, and then Esau, he knows how to get his dad's attention. He'll go out and kill some game and bring it in and spice it up that his dad likes to eat it. And dad will say, that's my boy. And he'll give Esau anything he wants, you know, give him the keys to the car, give him money, whatever he wants. Jacob, on the other hand, he knows if he's going to get anything from dad, mom's going to have to make it work. And so, and, and, and Rebecca has learned how to tell Isaac only what Isaac needs to know in order for Isaac to give her boy what she wants him to have. You know what? You show me any family where there's a system and everybody knows how to gain the system and the first victim will always be truth. Everybody knows how to lie to each other. Everybody knows how to, everybody knows how, how, how to trip the switches and turn on the knobs to get what they want out of life. And here's the thing. I guess for a while it probably worked all right. At least it wasn't catastrophic. But the day came. Why, why, are, we, why are we always surprised when we gain the system? Why are we surprised when it blows up in our face one day? This is maybe more than you want to know. If you read, this, you read the Scriptures, you'll get the full impact of it. But there were two very special gifts that were conferred to the oldest son. They were the birthright and the blessing. Now, the birthright involved the spiritual leadership of the family. The father, in a covenant relationship such as this family was, the father would confer the birthright to the oldest son. That would mean he would be the spiritual leader of a whole new generation. It would also mean in this particular case, as our series is about, that he would be in the lineage of the coming Messiah. That was a very, very treasured thing, but not to Esau. Esau didn't care about spiritual stuff. He was not a spiritual man. He, you know, he basically just wanted to have a good time, go hunting, and have sex. That's basically what Esau was all about. So the idea of being spiritual leader of the family didn't mean a lot to him, but for some reason it meant a lot to Jacob. And the second thing was the blessing, and the blessing was very, very important to Esau because basically what it was, God had promised a blessing to Abraham and his family, so when the father conferred the blessing, it was the opportunity and the ability, the God-given ability to make money and to be prosperous. Esau wanted that real bad. Well, anyway, let me just tell you how these two things went down and how the family kind of blew up because, first of all, Jacob set his eyes on the birthright. He knew Esau didn't really want it. 
One day Esau had been out hunting, been hunting probably for several days. He was hungry, hadn't eaten, came in. Jacob in the kitchen doing, you know, doing his recipes. Jacob was cooking probably red beans. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you if you're not a southerner, but if you're a southerner like me, red beans, man, that's great stuff, especially if you've been hunting. And so Esau comes in. He says to Jacob, I want you to give me some of your red beans. And Jacob said, how much is it worth to you? By the way, did I tell you that Jacob means trickster? How do you get a name like trickster? I don't know if his parents named him at birth or waited about five years. But anyway, trickster was his name. <laughs> Jacob said, how much is it worth to you? Esau said, I don't, I'm dying. I don't I mean, what's, it, what's a birthright worth to me? And Jacob said, sell me your birthright. And in just a moment, we're going to find out Jacob stole the blessing, but he bought the birthright. And so Esau said, Sure. Have it, Jacob. Give me the beans. And he sold his birthright. He sold the spiritual leadership of the family. But the second thing, Esau wanted a great deal, and that was the blessing. Isaac now is getting old. His eyesight's not very good. He's sort of taken to his bed. He's going to live for a long time. But, you know, ladies, I don't know if any of you are married. Have you any of you ladies married to sort of a hypochondriac? When he gets sick, I mean, it's like he just, like, gets helpless. Don't, don't, don't look at anybody, all right? <laughs> Isaac's going to live for a long time, but it's I'm dying, and it's time for me to confer the blessing, and I'm hungry. And so he goes to Esau, and he says, Esau, I'm dying. I want to give you the blessing. Now go out, and you find me, you know, find some good tender game. Bring it back. Spice it up. I'm going to eat it, and I'm going to confer the blessing to you. And Esau said, got it, Daddy. Got his, got his bow and his 30 6 and he went out. And Rebecca overhears. Yeah, she wants her boy to get the blessing. But how's that going to happen? Because it doesn't belong to him. It belongs to Esau. And so she says to Jacob, you know, Jacob, we're going to pull one on your dad. You're going to get, the, I want you to have that blessing. And Jacob said, there's no way in the world I can get that blessing because my brother is covered with hair. And even though my dad can't see, he's going to pull me close and he's going to feel my arm and he's going to tell that I'm smooth and don't have a lot of hair. And besides, I smell like polo and my brother smells like B.O. And so how in the world <laughs> am I going to get this? His mama said, don't worry about that. Jacob said, beside that, I don't know how to hunt. Mom said, she went out and got a little goat from the flock, you know. You know how it is, man. You're making chili. You put spices in there. You don't know whether it's squirrel or beef, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so she makes up the, the, the chili for him to take into his dad. And, he, and on top of that, she straps goat fur on Jacob. Man, Esau must have been something. And then puts Esau's clothes on Jacob so that Jacob will smell like Esau. And so Isaac, his dad, pulls him close, and he, and he, and he eats the meat. And he said, wow, it's, it's great. How did, how did you find it so fast? And Jacob said, the Lord helped me find it. Well, you start lying, you know, you got to tell another lie. And so he, he pulled him and said, man, the voice sounds like Jacob, but feels like Esau, smells like Esau. Okay, Jacob, you got the blessing. And mama has pulled her thing. I mean, she, is, she has gamed the system. Her boy has got the prize. The only problem is Esau comes home, finds out what his brother's done, and he said, I am going to kill him. And the family blows up in one afternoon. Jacob has to run for his life. The parents who have had their favorites now have a situation where Esau is angry and bitter and doesn't want to have anything to do with his brother, wants to kill him, and Jacob has to run for his life. Well, that's not, I'm not into the sermon yet. I'm just telling you the baggage that Jacob has and where he comes from. <laughs> okay. 
Now Jacob is spending the first night away from home. He is an indoor guy, but now he is being forced to be an outdoor guy. And he goes as far as he can go to get as far away as he can from his brother. And he winds up in a place called Luz. The word Luz means it happens. That's honest. That's what it means. It happens. And while Jacob is there, he has a dream. And in his dream, God visits him. And he changes the name from it happens to Bethel, the house of God. Boy, when you come to the place in your life where you go from it happens to house of God, you're, you're living a different kind of life. A lot of you have given your lives to Christ. You're going to celebrate it with baptism next week. And you've gone from it happens to God is here. And, and Jacob at this moment knows he needs God. I mean, he comes from a very dysfunctional situation. He knows he needs God. And so he, he, he prays a prayer and he calls the place Bethel. And Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, and will, uh, you know, and, and the journey I'm taking, and will give me food and clothes so that I return safely, then the Lord will be my God and I'll give you 10%. Now, is there anything missing there? I want to talk to all of you who have yet to start a family or maybe you're coming out of a family situation and you're beginning, you know, you had the breakup of a marriage or a relationship and you're kind of standing in the crossroads and you're about to start dating again. Whenever you come to a crossroads in life, when you're leaving one situation and you're about to go into a new situation, stop for a moment and be sure that you deal with your baggage because here's what I see. Jacob at this moment has a prime opportunity to stop and think about where he is in life and what he wants for his future. And all I can pick up from this prayer is Jacob is saying, if you will make me successful and keep me safe, I will tithe. You know, I can't believe... How many Christians I've heard that have said something similar to that? You know, if God, will, if God will make me rich and if God will keep me safe and take care of me, I'll go to church and give him some. Do you notice it? Do you notice something's missing here? I mean, I don't, I don't hear anything from Jacob like, Lord, you know what kind of family situation I came from, and here I am a young man. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to find somebody to marry, and God, please, I don't want to bring from my past what I experienced. I want my family to be different. I don't want any favoritism in my family. I don't want any envy in my family. I don't want any hatred. God, I'm on the run because my brother's wanting to kill me. Dear God, please don't ever let that happen to my children. I don't hear that. All I hear is a man who wants to be rich and wants to be safe, and he's willing to pay God off if it happens. The second thing, I need six weeks to bring this message, and I got 10 minutes. The second thing, you just live in denial. Listen to me, please, because I'm talking to a lot of you who are young, and you're saying, okay, Mark, I'm, I'm not like Jacob. I know exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to marry the perfect guy, and we're going to have three kids, two girls and one boy, and they're all going to have straight teeth, and they're going to make A's in school, and they're always going to be respectful, and they're going to say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, no, sir, no, ma'am, and I'm not going to have any of these problems in my family. Kudos to you for having high goals. <laughs> Can I just tell you something? And, and I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. Life's going to hit you hard, and it's going to hit you hard in your family. Everybody here. There is no mojo. There's no magic. There's no perfect formula for a perfect family. There's some things you can do that are helpful. But at the end of the day, there's no guarantee of a perfect family. And I promise you, if you have more than one kid, you can have one kid teach you to pray. 
Well, life hit Jacob hard. What are you going to do when life hits you hard in your family and things don't work out the way you want in your marriage and your husband is not everything you thought he was? And it's like, I don't know who this, this guy is dating and the guy I'm married is two different guys. What are you going to do when that happens? What are you going to do when you have what you think are perfect kids and you hold them, you know, in, in the birthing sweetness? Oh, this, look at this little cherubic face when they're 13 years old. They're not cherubic anymore. What are you going to do with, when life hits you hard in your family? Because this is a really big question. Hit Jacob hard, you know. Jacob now is going to work for his uncle. I don't know how many generations removed, but his, his mother's family. And his, his uncle's kind of like, he's sort of like a trickster like Jacob. And so Jacob goes there, and very quickly Jacob notices that he has two daughters. Now, the younger daughter's name is Rachel. And the Bible's very, very graphic about Rachel. Rachel's eyes sparkle, and she's got the kind of figure that men turn. And, I mean, Rachel walks into a room, everybody, male, between 16 and 65 or 75 or whatever, turn and look at her because she is dazzling. Her name means like little ewe lamb or like little fawn. So she is the princess. She has grown up the princess in the family. And everybody knows she's the princess. The problem is her older sister, Leah, and there's no genteel way of saying this. The name Leah means cow. And the Bible says her eyes don't sparkle. Now, I, I want to tell you something. I think Leah's a great person. She's, she's somebody I'm looking forward to meeting when I get to heaven. I think she has a lot of wonderful qualities. But the problem is she just is not endowed physically the way her little princess sister is. Well, guess which one Jacob is smitten with? Rachel. Daddy, her daddy comes to Jacob and says, Jacob, I can't have you working for me for nothing. What do you want? Now, here's the thing. This is what's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, Jacob is so smitten, he doesn't even ask for dad to quote the price. Jacob's a good businessman. Usually he drives a pretty hard deal, but this time he's so smitten, he just says, I'll work seven years for Rachel. And that was hard work too, man. He was outdoors. It was cold in the winter and hot in the summer. And he was, I mean, it was back-breaking work. So he said, I mean, he just, he quoted the price. I will work seven years for Rachel. How many of you husbands here today would work seven years for your wife? And do not raise your hand. Let's just stop this right now. Because it, if you fail to raise your hand, you're dead. And if you lie in church, it's not a good thing. So let's just stop this right now. And yet the Bible says Jacob was so smitten with Rachel, it just felt like a few days because he had great love for her. Finally, time came for the wedding. He didn't have big weddings like we have today. Basically, Jacob's in his tent. It's dark. There are no lights. And Daddy brings the daughter to his tent. <laughs> I don't have time to tell the story, but I'm trying to tell it anyway. For years, I used to do a conference for a church in my hometown of Fort Worth. And it was an older church, but it's very, very affluent. This typical kind of North Dallas church. And you go into the parking lot, it's full of luxury cars. I mean, every imaginable luxury cars, Mercedes-Benz, Lincoln, Cadillac, Rolls, even Rolls-Royce, I promise you, in this parking lot. And so I didn't, I mean, I'm a young guy. I don't know what to say to a lot of the people. So I would, you know, if I found them in the parking lot, I would compliment them on the car. I remember there was this one couple that had this Lincoln. It must have been the kind they would have in a North Dallas dealership with all the lights in the showroom. Because this Lincoln had every imaginable um, feature on it is a beautiful link, silver Lincoln, padded roof, gold emblems and stuff. And, and you know, and if you've ever lived in Texas, it's the kind of car that a, a woman with big hair and lots of jewelry would, would drive. 
And I used to say to them, just making small talk, you know, because this gal didn't drive the car hardly at all. I used to say, well, you know, if you ever decide to sell this car, give me a call. I'm just trying to be, just trying to be nice. One day I got a phone call from this couple. They said, we'd love to sell you the car, and Mark, we'll just give it to you for this. And it was so dirt cheap, I had to buy it. <laughs> so I get this silver Lincoln, you know, and I drive to Texas, and I, and I, I pick it up at night. They want to take me to dinner, so it's like 10 o'clock when I finally get the car. My parents are still living down there in Fort Worth, so I drove to their house, spent the night. Got up the next morning to drive my silver Lincoln, and I looked at it in the daylight, and guys, it was lavender. <laughs> For a whole year, I drove around this lavender Lincoln with a padded roof and gold. I mean, it was like every, I had my manhood challenge more times. I finally sold it, but I guarantee you I had a line of people waiting to buy it when I did. Now, this is what happened to Jacob because he goes to sleep and he thinks, well, I've got my girl. It's in the dark. He doesn't know who she is. He wakes up in the morning, and it's not Rachel. It's Leah. And man, Jacob blows up, and he goes to Daddy. He says, wait a minute. Here's the deal. You promised me Rachel, little, little tender you lamb, and I got Leah. And his dad said, oh, I forgot to tell you, or her dad said, I forgot to tell you, we have a little law here, a rule here in our, our, our country. And that is uh, the younger, younger daughter can't get married first. The older daughter has to get married first. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you have Rachel on credit if you'll work with me for seven more years. Now, guys, I'm here, please. We're, you're going to need to help me a little bit here because we're talking about a guy with two wives. And we know that's wrong. It never was God's plan. But it was part of the culture at that time. And at the end of the day, here's the thing. Here's the point I want to make that's salient to you and me. The smartest thing Jacob could have done at that point is to find a way to love Leah. But instead, he lived in denial. He basically pretended he didn't have a wife. And Leah was there. She was like this. You're going to... You're going to have situations in your family that are not what you intended, not what you expected. Now, I'm not talking about any kind of abuse or anything like that. Nobody should live in that. But you're going to have some situations that are not perfect. And here's the advice that I would give you, and I think this would have been wise for Jacob. Do the best thing available. Because a lot of times what we wanted is no longer available to us. Our dream marriage is not available. Our dream relationship with our kids is not available. So at that moment, you do the best thing available. That would have been so smart for Jacob to do the best thing available, but he didn't. He just lived in denial as though it didn't happen. And wow, things blew up. I mean, the Bible says in chapter 29, verse 30, he loved Rachel more than Leah. But God said... In verse 31, the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. Basically, she was a wife, but she wasn't loved. And Leah was able to have kids, and unfortunately, Rachel couldn't. And so the Bible says Rachel became jealous of her sister. So do you notice what's happened here? I mean, now all of a sudden, the envy and the favoritism that Jacob grew up with, now it's in his family. How do you have a dysfunctional family? First of all, you just don't deal with the baggage. Number two, live in denial, and you don't make course corrections when life brings you stuff that you don't expect. And the third thing is, when the person who could do something doesn't do something and instead acts as though he's an innocent bystander. You know what? Whenever I see Jacob, all the stuff that's screwed up in his family, I always see Jacob like this. What can I do? Wives going crazy, having baby derbies. 
you know, boys, envious, whatever. Well, and Jacob, I don't know. You ever, you ever meet, and I think guys tend to do this more than, than gals. What can I do? Are you kidding, Jacob? You're the one everything is revolving around. You could step in and do something. Well, what can I do? Let me just show you this. First of all, let me tell you about the baby derby. I mean, Leah could have kids. Rachel couldn't. Leah became pregnant, gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben for she said, surely my husband will love me now. Isn't that sad? She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. Again, she conceived, and she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And so Leah's having kids. Rachel, Rachel's, Rachel can't. When Rachel saw she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, here is Bilhah, my maidservant. Jacob only wanted one wife. He has two. Now he's got three. Here is Bilhah, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and that through her I can build a family. Well, that sounds plausible, I guess. So she gave him her, I'm telling you, this is a reality show. It wasn't, it wasn't all right. And I'm not even giving you the, more, the, the worst part. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant, and she bore him a son. Then Rachel said, you know, you know Rachel's got a little baby to hold. What does Rachel say? God has vindicated me. That doesn't sound like somebody excited about a new baby. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again. She bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I've had a great struggle with my sister, and I've won. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob. Jacob's got four wives now. You think that's something? You, you need to know. Mandrakes were, they were considered, it's a little plant, they were considered aphrodisiacs. They were, they were what, you, what you would think from an aphrodisiac to heighten sexual arousal. Also, they thought that they advantaged a woman in conception. So you can imagine, Rachel would like to have an aphrodisiac. And Leah's oldest son, Reuben, is now old enough to go out in the field. And while he's out in the field, he finds some of these mandrakes, these aphrodisiacs. And so he comes in the field waving what he has. I don't know if he knew what he had or not, but he came in. And, and Rachel knew what he had. And so she was watching Leah's son come in with mandrakes. And so she goes to Leah and says, hey, I want some of your son's mandrakes. Well, listen to what Leah said to her. Wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. I'm telling you, this is the reality show. <laughs> what a messed up family. And you know what? We haven't even gotten into Jacob's kids yet. He would have 12 sons, and 10 of his sons would hate one of them. And the Bible says the reason why that happened was Jacob loved Joseph more than the, oh, that sounds like his daddy. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him his whole age. He made him a richly ornamented coat. And because he was daddy's favorite, the rest of the brothers could not speak favorably to him. And eventually, you know what they did? They sold him as a slave into Egypt. And then you have the story of Joseph. I hope we learn some things about a dysfunctional family today. It starts with not dealing with baggage, and it goes forward with living in denial and not making course corrections and accepting some things that are not exactly what we would want. And it goes with the person who could do something about it not doing something about it. And I hope we've learned to avoid those things, favoritism, envy, all that. I've got one minute. Is it possible if you're in a dysfunctional family, is it possible to function 
We, we mentioned Joseph, and I wish I had another hour to tell you his story. But Joseph is, it's amazing. He is, he is more victimized by this than anybody else. Nobody is as victimized by this dysfunctional family as Joseph is, and yet he is the game changer, and eventually he will become the leader of the free world at that point, and basically he will make a way for his whole dysfunctional family to come and live at his expense. What is it that makes a game changer? To me, it's as simple as this one thing. If you understand a dysfunctional family, it happens because people are saying to themselves within this family situation, I am not going to be whole unless I can get what I want from other people in my family. That's the, that's, that's the basis for dysfunction. In other words, imagine, if you will, please, a stick figure that would be a character and an arrow pointing toward the stick figure. In other words, this is a person who in the family, as they prosecute the relationship of the family, they basically see everybody else pointing toward them. In other words, if I'm going to be everything I need to be, I need to get what I need from my parents, I need to get what I need from my kids, I need to get what I... It's like I need my... my, my, My wife is the source of my happiness. If she's not making me happy, then it's her fault. It's up to my kids to make me happy. And if they're not making me happy, it's their fault. It's up to my husband to make me happy. And if he's not making me happy, it's his fault. You see, that's how you have a dysfunctional family. There's an error always pointing in. When I look at Joseph, he had a screwed-up family. If he was depending upon his family for his well-being, it was, he was looking wrong place. Whenever I see Joseph, I see a stick figure and an error pointing down because Joseph said, my well-being is not coming from my daddy. It's not coming from my mama. It's not coming from my ten brothers who hate me. My well-being comes from God, and I am who God has made me to be. And if everybody in my family is whacked, if I have God in my life, I'm still going to be okay. And you're looking at a guy who went through a series of awful things. Life hit him and hit him and hit him and hit him. But all throughout that, he said, I am depending upon God for my well-being. And you know what? If you depend on God for your well-being, you can deal with the hurts and the pains and the difficulties and the disappointments of a dysfunctional family, and you can rise above it all. My prayer is God will help you this Christmas. Thank you. I just want to pray for, I know that there's some of you here who kind of like my friend, and you're saying, I'm headed for the holidays, and then there's stuff that I'm not looking forward to. I want to pray for you right now, okay? Father, I look to you, and I ask for help for those who are struggling with family situations. And God, give them the spirit of Joseph that says, no matter what's happened to me, I'm going to be okay because you are my God. Oh, God, give us that so that we can be game changers in our families. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll be back to sign devotionals in the back. Ryan.